Thanks for downloading show 86 of the C-Suite podcast, the first of two episodes that we're recording at Madworld, Europe's only conference and exhibition putting mental health at the heart of a cross-industry, cross-functional agenda. This is the second year running that we've attended this event, and this time we're partnering with commercial interior designers Circularis 8, who work closely with their clients to create effective working environments that have a real positive impact on the mental health and well-being of employees, which of course is the topic of this episode. And so we're set up on their exhibition stand in the networking area to record our interviews today. My name's Russell Goldsmith, and I'm going to be chatting to a number of the speakers from today's conference, which we hope will provide a real flavour and understanding of the topics and issues being discussed. And to kick off this episode, I'm delighted that Ian Stewart, Group Managing Director and CEO of HSBC UK Bank PLC, has joined me ahead of his opening keynote. Thank you so much for joining us today, Ian. Can you talk us through what you're going to be speaking about this morning? Well, thank you, Russ, and it is an absolute pleasure to be here today. But I'm going to be talking to you about what we've done in HSBC to try and help bring mental health to life in the organisation and principally to explain what we've done to try and get people to comfortable or be comfortable about speaking about mental health. So how are you implementing this within your own organisation strategy? So it really kicked off just over two years ago. Uh, people were talking about it but it was in the corridors so we've really tried to give people the confidence to speak up. Um, have that conversation. It might be a difficult conversation, but at the same time give our people the tools to at least be able to have a conversation with people and point them in the right direction. And that's been quite a big undertaking. But really the, the driver behind this was a conversation with the Bishop of Manchester about two years ago when we were talking about some of the things we were doing and very quickly having had that conversation it was very clear we were not doing enough. So he was the turbocharger behind our thinking and from there, I think we've done a lot of great things. But let me assure you, we are still at the foothills of this one. We've sure. got a long way to go. Can you give some examples of some of those things that you've implemented then? Yes, so we have made training available to everyone who wants to be a little bit more skilled in mental health. But at the same time, we've given 280 people extra training who have volunteered for this. So we've got mental health champions across the business now. So as I say, 280 in the UK people can go to and get some help or get some advice. We've got to be careful, we're not experts, but what we're trying to do is give people enough skills that they can point people in the right direction. But I think our greatest achievement so far is really encouraging flexible working. So we're a large bank, we've got to service our customers and that is very important to us, but we've given people permission to work flexibly wherever they can. And, and that has been done at the sharp end of the business. It's not a communication from headquarters, it's people really picking this up and making it happen at the front end. And can you share any case studies at all, any individuals that have benefited or, or, or been through the process? Well, you know, anxiety is a, is a big problem in, in part of the mental health makeup today. So people don't know when they're going to get anxious. They don't know when an anxiety attack is going to come on. So we, we look out for that. But secondly, a lot, a lot of it's stress-induced. Uh, it might be people who have got to look after elderly parents, uh, grandparents, or have got children with special needs, and trying to give them a flexible working environment just makes their life much easier. And it's been the biggest piece of feedback we have had, which is, thank you for making my life easier, I can get more organised, and I don't feel I'm competing with family issues, which creates anxiety or creates pressure, which leads to all sorts of different aspects of my life being ruined. And it's those sort of like ruined that really have jolted us into taking some action. And how are you measuring the impact that these programmes are, are having? 
So we've got two significant surveys that we do in the business. They would be our main feedback opportunities from our staff and we get general feedback all the time. So we've taken on some really big topics. Taking on mental health is actually a big, a big topic, but we've taken on menopause, which 50% of our people will have to go through at one point or another. And we've got another 50% of the population who virtually know nothing about it. So when you talk about these things, the, the men in the audience generally have their head down and, and the women in the audience go, about time, you know? So we've really spent time taking on these big topics and that's coming through in the feedback. And it's incredible how liberated people now feel that go, it's okay to talk about that. We, we can have that conversation. So I think just giving people the permission, um, that has come through in our surveys. So we're now up to 80% of our people, and that's quite big for a large organisation, now feel free to speak up. And four out of five people are now saying they've got the environment to work in, which helps them get through their daily activities. Right. I was here at Mad World last year interviewing the speakers about, obviously, similar themes. There's a lot of talk about what we should be doing. Do you believe organisations, and, and this is larger or, or small, do you, do you believe they're doing enough to improve mental health and well-being in their workplaces? Well, well Ross, that's a really important question, um, and I, I'm, I'm definitely not here to preach. I mean, we are very much work in progress. We're not here to gloat on oh, how good we are. What we're saying is we've given an environment or tried to create an environment where it is okay to speak up. And if you've got a problem, we will try and help. We, we are not a genius organisation, you know, we can't do everything, but we generally try and help. And we talk about care all the time. I think our actions prove that we do care. Uh, and the people that we've got working in the organisation, they care about their colleagues, they care about their customers. And I think that's coming through. But I think what we have to do, we are, we are very privileged in the roles that we've got in organisations, is create the environment so people can speak up. And that's the only thing I'm going to really say to people today is, you are privileged you, can't, you, you maybe can't save the world, but you can make a difference. And if you use your privileged position to make a difference, people will notice. Perfect. So your main call to action, then you're about to go on, on stage, do your, your um, keynote talk. What's, the, what's that key message that you want to leave the audience with today and those listening to this podcast? So uh, the biggest learn for us is put the power out to the front line. Do not make a bureaucratic decision about flexible working. But if I look at the feedback I've got, flexible working has made the biggest difference to people. They can organise their lives around both their private life and their work life. And we've really tried to make that happen for people. So that would be number one. Number two would be, even although it's a small thing, don't underestimate how much that means to somebody who is maybe struggling or doesn't know where to go or doesn't know who to speak to. And then the final thing, and this is the difficult one, is make time because we've never got enough time. So if you can actually make a little bit of time to listen, and you've got to listen, then you can really start to help people. Tremendous. Ian Stewart, uh, thank you so much for joining us, and good luck with the talk this morning. Pleasure, Ross. Thank you. Now, I'm really excited to introduce our next guest, Ruby Wax OBE, comedian, author, mental health campaigner, ambassador for Mind and Sane, and president of Relate, chancellor of Southampton University. And as if all that isn't enough to keep her busy, she's also the founder of Frazzled Cafe, which is what she is here to talk to us about today. Uh, Ruby, thanks so much for taking uh, time out to chat. Um, I know you've got a busy schedule at Mad World. We'll talk about Frazzled Cafe in a second, but you took part in a panel session earlier at the event. How did that go? I don't really remember what I said. I was just correcting people, I think. 
<laughs> because everybody talks statistics. But I want to know what they're going to do. Yeah. And that some line manager is going to figure out what to do with people who have this, you know, mental problem. Well, is it a mental illness or are you just stressed? Because those are two different ball games. Yeah. So first of all, where do they send people who really have depression? And what are they doing to help people with stress? So I, I don't care about the statistics. I mean, it's important, but do something. Do you, do you think it's, there's too much talk then and not enough action at the moment? I, well, I said, let's have a conversation of, success, of suggestions. How come we're sitting here? Yeah, and yeah. Um, one guy said something, I think, about the fluffy stuff, you know? meaning depression I said wait a minute sweetheart this is like walking in a brick wall I mean people have cancer and say depression is worse not good not good Uh, I mentioned in my intro uh, that you're here with the team from Frazzle Cafe the charity you launched in 2017 can you give us a little background to the work uh, that the charity does and also why you launched it well, the, the reason I launched it is because for my shows for the last 12 years, in the second half, I have the audience stand up. And these are sometimes big theaters, you know, and they, the, the people stand up and they're so brave to say, this is what's going on in my life. You know, my work's burning me out. My kids can't take school anymore, whatever. And they feel for that minute that people really care. And it's so tragic that they have to do it in a theater. Um, so I decided maybe we should open spaces where people could speak human to each other instead of this cocktail blather, you know, asking how your kids are doing like you care, and speak from the heart, you know. And it's a replacement for community. That's where it's gone wrong. That's why people are isolated. So they're opened in a lot of Marks and Spencers and now in different franchises. And we invite, they close the cafe. We invite people through frazzlecafe.org and then we have a trained facilitator who watches over it so you're safe it's not therapy and uh, it's anonymous so people don't like to talk to their family and friends about stuff but this isn't a, a bitching session it's just uh it's it's a tribe i suppose that's a you, you need to make that clear distinction don't you that it's not therapy this isn't like, therapy this yeah. is more like aa except without the 12 step because right. i was always jealous but you find people that you can now have that bond with and they meet then if they can every two weeks and it's been going on for years because it's it's not a drop-in it's um it's a place to be it's okay to not be okay and the conversations are fantastic and you've got a defrazzled zone here at the uh, the conference you can go in there do you want to talk us some of the things that you're going on in there well it's get you know it's it it's setting up an artificial situation, just making people aware. But every business should have a Frazzle Cafe. Right. We're putting it in schools. And when you see people can hear and they care about you, you go, oh, I'm so relieved. I'm like the human race again. Yeah. And what are you hoping that the response will be from some of the corporate guests, you know, some of those that have been in to see well, the Frazzle they'll Cafe? O- they'll open a Frazzle Cafe in their business, Yeah. which, you know, it can only help. That, so, you know, what line producer can... You know, they can suggest, you know, every Thursday we have this. You have to sign a confidentiality clause right. and um, watch this space. So if the corporate listeners to this podcast want to get involved with supporting or working with Frazzle Cafe, where do they need to go for further information? If you go to frazzlecafe.org or we have, uh, you know, handouts, it tells you exactly where to go. Really, you should open. it should be everywhere because we 
we, again, we don't have community, so here it is. Now, outside of the work you're doing with Frazzle Cafe, you're also on tour at the moment with your show, How To Be Human, based on your best-selling book of the same name. What can audiences expect to see? Well, just come to see it. I'm touring all over the UK. It's funny, and it's, uh, it tells you how, why we are the way we are. Everybody wants to know that. Tickets still available? Yeah, I'm sure. Tremendous. Oh, well, it's at um, Richmond on the 20th, so that's not far from London. No, not yeah. at all. Well, uh, good luck with the tour. Um, of course, good luck with Frazzle Cafe. Um, I'd love to have spoken longer, but I know you've got quite a busy schedule here. So uh, for now, Ruby Wax, thank you so much. Thank you, and thanks for helping me. Pleasure. So I'm now joined by Christophe Dubose, the founder of Circularis 8, our partners for the two episodes we're producing here at Madworld. And I'm thrilled to say that alongside Christophe is Kelly Steckelberg, CFO of Zoom, who is over from San Francisco for this event. Uh, Christophe interviewed Kelly earlier this morning in a fireside chat in front of a packed conference room about creating the right environments for happiness at work and maximum well-being impact. How did the session go? Better than I could have imagined, um, and that, I, I'm not saying that uh, in any other sense, but in the conversation, so many things have come out that are following the thread of what was introduced this morning. So Ian Stewart talked about uh, making things simple and not making big policies, making it part of culture, and that is everything that Zoom uh, emblems that, that in, in, is enwrapped in their culture, and it's and it's quite uh, the, the, the uptake from the crowd uh, was remarkable. I mean, you know, this is Britain, people don't want to speak in public, and there were lots of hands shooting up wanting to ask questions and, and take on a mic. So it's great to see people overcoming their fear of public speaking because they want to get involved in the discussion. I, I just couldn't have imagined a better, a Kelly, better result. What, what was your thoughts? It was, it was great. It was a great opportunity to talk about Zoom and tell our story, and also how video helps support you know, building rapport being together, bringing people together, and it really seemed to resonate with the audience. Right. Really well, nice. well, I'll come on to that in a bit more in a second, but this whole conference is focused on mental health and well-being. At Zoom, you center the company around the word happiness, and just to prove I've done my research, I looked on your conference website, your Zoomtopia, which I think is a great name, and it even says on there, sponsors of happiness on it. Talk, tell us about all sure. that. Sure. So everything we do at Zoom is focused on delivering happiness to our customers and our employees. And this starts with our CEO, Eric Yuan, who reminds us constantly, if you wake up in the morning and you don't feel great, if you don't feel happy about going to work today, then take that day for yourself. Figure out what it is. Because if we don't have really happy employees, they can't be providing happiness to our customers. A few other examples of how this gets manifested at Zoom is we have a happiness crew. They focus on delivering events and driving happiness within the organization. We recently had a Bring Your Parents to Work Day, which was really awesome. Get to see the joy in parents' eyes when they see their kids and how proud they are. We have a spreading happiness program where if you see a colleague that is struggling with something or having a bad day or you just want to give them a little pick-me-up, no questions asked, send them some flowers, a meal, a gift of some sort. And so it really is a nice way to empower everybody in the organization to deliver happiness, not only to our employees, but to their colleagues as well. And are you able to go into a bit more detail about how this culture has actually helped someone specifically in the team? Yeah, I was thinking about a case story to talk about, and I decided to talk about myself. And so I was having challenging with something at work, and my boss, Eric, came to my house on a Saturday to check on me and see if I was okay. And I think that just embodies everything about Eric and what our company is. And 
I'm not unique in that sense. I know he has visited employees in the hospital. Like he's gone to employees' weddings. Like he, it really starts with Eric and goes all the way through the organization. And there, just to jump in a little bit, because they are um, uh, absolutely relentless about this, uh, this, this notion of happiness and delivering happiness. And, and it also translates right down through the supply chain. So being one of Zoom's suppliers, we really we had to get on board with that as well. Uh, and it's made a big difference and made a big impact in our in our company. So it's uh, it, it's one of those things where it's a it's a it's a stone in the pond, but it rippled. The ripple effect is you couldn't even imagine how far it goes. Um, with your CFO hat on, are you able to see how Zoom's approach benefits the business financially as well? Absolutely. One way we see it is because of the happiness that our employees are experiencing, we have attrition of 1% per quarter, so really less than 4% annually of voluntary and involuntary attrition. And that is huge. When you aren't having churn in your employee base, it promotes productivity, it saves you money on recruiting, training, etc. We also see it in our customer base in that we have a net promoter score of over 70 and the average for the industry is approximately 20. So that helps a lot when we have customers really promoting and talking about the power of Zoom, CIO to CIO selling, and that really helps benefit the business. Um, and you know, the, the, I think the bit that's probably the strongest to, to, to really imagine is you know, uh, recruitment costs um, and uh, you know the things that the, the the disruption that happens when 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 things are upset and and uh, moving around, uh, you you get a lot of certainty in, in that sense when you, when you have those kinds of figures. Um, and whenever you look at Zoom as well, it's not just that you know that's a remarkable low attrition rate, but the metrics for Zoom are on the top of everything. So the Gartner is the top right-hand corner. Eric's been the most uh, admired CEO on Glassdoor for two, three years running. Uh, there's another... Yeah, know. Comparably just came out with the list of the companies with the happiest employees, and we were number one on that yeah. list. So, so, so it's just hitting the top of the charts everywhere you look. Tremendous. Uh, now, I'm not just saying this because you're standing in front of me. I am a big fan of Zoom, and I do use it every day. I was just wondering, though, have you, have you looked at the links between using video to communicate and the impact it has on our well-being. Absolutely. It really helps build rapport. It helps build engagement. We see companies that don't have any physical workspace any longer and have employee bases of 700 to 800 employees, and yet they can do it effectively because those employees live in Zoom every day and they still feel connected to the workplace. Okay, so I just want to finish off by asking both of you for one quick learning or takeout that you've had from being at Mad World this morning. So Kelly, let's, let's start with you. I think it's a great reminder of how common, unfortunately, mental illness is, and that we probably have colleagues suffering around us every day, and just to be thoughtful about that, and as an employer, making sure that we continue to support them every way that we can. Right. And Christoph? Uh, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's funny, because the theories out there that we should be doing this but the, the, the hard facts of it are right in front of us every day as well. So, uh, and, and I was really encouraged by the opening session about making it simple and not making big, heavy, difficult policies, but making it cultural. And I just, I can't tell you how encouraging that is, that there's not actually, you know, some big mountain to overcome. It's actually a lovely little walk on the beach. Brilliant. Kelly Steckelberg, Christoph DeBose, thank you for joining the show. We are back after this quick break. Thanks for having thank you. us. You're listening to the C-Suite Podcast. To listen to all previous shows in the series, you can either visit csuitepodcast.com, follow us on SoundCloud, or subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, or in any one of your favorite podcast apps. 
Please do give us a positive rating and review when you do. Welcome back to the C-Suite podcast with me, Russell Goldsmith, and joining me now is Rob Stevenson, a mental health campaigner and keynote speaker and founder of Inside Out. Now, Inside Out publishes a leaderboard of senior leaders who are open about the challenges of mental health. Uh, Rob, let's start there. Tell us about the launch of that leaderboard, because I know that launched this year, didn't it, and how progress has gone so far? Thank you, Russell. Delighted to be here. So the Inside Out Leaderboard is a means of smashing the stigma by publishing leaders who are open about their challenges of mental ill health. We published the first leaderboard with 42 trailblazing role models who all put their name to this list that was published in the Sunday Times. And then we had a LinkedIn campaign of hashtag smashing the stigma and really created an impact of people being open about their challenges because when our leaders speak out that starts the process of culture change and allows everybody in organizations to put their hand up if they are struggling with mental ill health but then it moves the narrative to focusing on well-being and preventatively managing mental health. Are you able to share some of the names that are on that on that list and the companies that they're from? Absolutely we had uh, Dame Jane Angadia the CEO of Virgin Money at the time we had Amanda Lambert who's the HR director people director for three the mobile business We had the commissioner of the London Fire Brigade, Danny Cotton, who has an amazing story of leadership and vulnerability post the tragedy that was Grenfell, where she realised if her firefighters were going to seek the help they needed to recover from the trauma they witnessed, she needed to be open about the fact she was seeing a therapist at a time of intense public scrutiny. Was it difficult to get them to commit to being on on the board or...? It wasn't difficult to get them to commit. The, the challenge was getting in front of them. Right. So it was a really big, long networking exercise. But actually, when I presented the idea to people who uh, have the challenges of mental ill health, they, they jumped at it. They said, this is great. They wanted to be a part of it. Right. Now, I should say that we do know each other. We're connected on LinkedIn. And um, I have to say, from the, the regular posts that I see from, from you on, on you know, that appear in my feed every day, uh, you appear to have been on some hell of a world tour, you know, on your smashing the, the Stigma World Tour, let's call it. Do you want to share what you've been up to and the companies that you've seen and where you've been? Absolutely. So for me, mental ill health and the stigma associated with it is a global challenge. You know, in the UK, I would say we're market leaders actually in breaking stigma and smashing stigma. But I want to take this globally. So I've been to Sydney recently and launched the concept out there and and spoke at Deloitte, where we had 150 people in a room. I also spoke for Herbert Smith Freehills. And the passion for the agenda there has been infectious, actually. But I've also launched the concept in Amsterdam for continental Europe and both in uh, New York and San Francisco for uh, for the United States. You said that um, you feel that we're leaders here in the UK in, in this uh, area. Where do you think, you know, seeing those other countries that you've been to and the companies that, that you've spoken in front of, where would you see, say they are in, you know, in terms of a scale compared to us? So I think that Australia is, is pretty good. Uh, there is a culture of, of openness and there are people that are being out. I think the US is getting there. So I've got probably now five or six law firm partners who have agreed to go on, on the US leaderboard. But I think they're, they're a little bit behind the agenda. I think continental Europe, if you look at some of the Scandinavian countries, more openness. Some of the other countries, however, you know, heavily stigmatised. And then those are the territories that I've gone to. If you then start looking at Asia and the Middle East, much more stigmatised. But we will be going there as well. Right. Now, something else that you um, regularly post on LinkedIn when you're doing your updates is your mood score. And I find this really interesting. So for those listeners you know, wondering what that is, you, you kind of give yourself a 6 out of 10, 7 out of 10, depending on, on how you're feeling that day. 
Tell us about that. Explain how that all works. So my mental form score is something that was given to me by a therapist as a, a tool in how I can manage my bipolar disorder. And it's really a tracker of my mental health. And what goes into that is how well I've slept, uh, have I been exercising, how purposeful do I feel, how motivated do I feel, how difficult or easy are simple tasks, how connected am I to friends and family. And so I've been using this for years and I really look for mood. So today, I'm an 8 out of 10. I'm really excited to be here and I'm on good form. But if I'm a 7, then a 6, I want to know why and what can I do to change. But recently, as a, a tool of smashing the stigma, I've started to post it both in my email signature and on my LinkedIn profile. And I've been blown away by the reaction that I've been getting from people of sharing their score back, checking in with me if I'm low, but just really connecting at a human level. My question, though, is how do you define what that score is? Because, for example, my 7 out of 10 might be your 6 out of 10 or your 8 out of 10. And, you know, how, how does that actually work? Is it dangerous to, you know, to, to get people to assess their own score? I think there can be differences in people's scales. I don't think it's dangerous to assess because I think that process of self-reflection and monitoring how we're feeling mentally will encourage us to think of what we can do to manage our mental health. On my LinkedIn profile, so Rob Stevenson, if you find me with a PH on LinkedIn, I've written an article about how I do this and there's actually a tool that you can download to see how I categorize the, the, the various levels. But for me, an eight out of 10 is very good form, seven is average, six is low mood. And then as we get down to five, four, I, I'm, I'm feeling depression. And, and then three, two, one are in sort of crisis. But a lot of people ask me about the 10 out of 10. So for me, 10 is lifetime best form. So you might experience this once, twice, three times in your life when all of the stars perfectly align. And that's something to strive for. So I think measuring it is good. I think people could have different scales, and I know they do. Mine is out there to download if people want to use it. Okay, well, what we'll do is we'll share a link to that, that post on the show notes of, of this podcast so people can, can find that easily. Rob, let's finish this off. What, what would be tangible things that, that organizations can do in this space? Tangible things. My focus is around leadership and inspiring leaders to get behind the mental health agenda, both in terms of sharing their stories, but treating it as a strategic priority of the organization. So I, I want to encourage leaders to do this. One thing that we've launched at Inside Out is something called the Inside Out Leadership Charter, which is a set of seven principles that organizations can sign up to. So simple things, we will have a board level sponsor for mental health and well-being. We will include mental health and well-being on boardroom agendas every six months. We will report on the impact of our initiatives on mental health and well-being. So on the website, inside-out.org, you can see information on the charter and how to sign up to. But I'm really passionate about getting organisations and their leaders to really get behind this agenda. Fantastic. Rob Stevenson, thank you for joining the show. One final question, Russ. What's your uh, score today? My score today is... Actually, it's going up. I, I would have said I started at a seven. I reckon I'm at an eight at the moment because these interviews are going really well. Brilliant, uplifting stuff. Well, thanks for having me. Cheers. So I am now joined by Laura Willis, co-founder of Shine Offline, and Nigel Hutchinson, head of workplace at PwC. Uh, Laura and Nigel are running a session a little later today uh, looking at whether flexible working can be a positive contributor to mental health. Uh, we'll find out a little bit about that in a second. But uh, Laura, first of all, let's get an intro to uh, Shine Offline. Hello, Russ. We're a digital management and well-being um, company. We basically help people to understand their relationships with their smartphones and other digital devices. 
where they might be causing overwhelm, overload, impacting their ability to do their jobs and impacting their work-life balance, etc. Um, and the changes that they need to make to start to get some balance back in their lives. And Nigel, tell us how you met uh, Laura and ended up uh, putting this session together this afternoon. Yeah, so um, I listened to uh, Laura at a uh, a conference or PAs about 18 months ago and thought actually my team absolutely need what Laura's talking about. I've got I lead a team of about 700 people, 220 of them work at home on a full-time basis and that interrelationship that people have with their smartphone um, and that ability or not to switch off especially for those that work at home uh, resonated with me and I thought okay I need to talk to Laura. So um, tell us about the session that you're going to be running this afternoon then, Laura. Well, the question is, can flexible working be a positive contributor to mental health? I think flexible working is something that um, most people are looking for now whenever they, they start a new job. People want an, a flexible approach to their work, and that's amazing. Digital technology has enabled this because we can carry work around with us now in our pockets and handbags. We're not tethered to the desk. But the flip side of this is that uh, people do struggle with switching off. Um, I actually experienced a period of mental ill health myself as a result of an overload from my digital technology, which inspired us to launch the business. And I know firsthand, if you've got no boundaries in your life around how you use your inbox and other work tech in your personal time, you can become really overwhelmed and overloaded. So our argument today, I suppose, is that it could be a positive contributor if you have boundaries, but if not, it really actually can have a negative impact on your mental health and your well-being. Yeah, no, I totally agree with Laura on that. In that flexible working, absolutely, all organisations should embrace. But I think where an organisation just says, oh, hey, we've got a flexible working policy and off you go, without really thinking and helping people through that and think of all of those boundary issues, the guilt issues of working at home. Uh, uh, my own personal experience was that I got the opportunity to uh, take a global role within my organisation, which meant I could work at home on a full-time basis. And um, whilst on one level that was fantastic, the feeling of isolation that built up over me in, in what actually was a relatively short period of time. Now, I'm not saying that the, the, the concept of flexible working led to my mental health issues and stress-related work, but it was one of the contributing factors. I learned of, about myself that I need the input of people, um, and being sat at a desk at home did not work for me. So I think it's easier to go, oh, great, we've got a flexible working uh, policy or a flexible working approach, but how do you help people manage it? Uh, now, um, you've, uh, Nigel, you've brought uh, Laura's team um, into PwC. You're actually running some programmes yep. at, at the office. Can you can you talk us through how that's you know progressing and the, and the kind of things that you're doing there? Yeah, I mean, it's obviously a number of things with a uh, large and diverse workforce. It, it is an administrative uh, workforce. They su support the partners and directors of the organisation. Two thirds of them work on site, and a third work off site, working at home. And we uh, one of the key focuses around their mental well-being as well as physical well-being and all those things around um, health and safety making sure desks yeah, they're all the easy things that you can do but when you then look at how do you equip people in a really really changing world and especially those that sit at home so working with Laura we've focused uh, on one of the the key aspects which is the the mobile phone how does people take control of that fantastic uh, tool? And it is a fantastic tool, but equally, how do they make sure that it doesn't control them? We moved about two and a half, three years ago from desk-based uh, telephones to every single member of PwC has a, an iPhone, which is fantastic, but equally, it's an always-on thing if you allow it to. So the, the work with Laura is about how the individual feels that they can control 
that mobile phone. And I've already seen positive results. The, the amount of people saying to me, oh wow, simple things, switching off notifications. I, I now feel like I can switch off that phone on an evening and them having control of it rather than the other way around. And Laura, how, how long does the programme actually last? We've been working with um, each of the employees over a six week period. So we're bringing them into um, the room as a kickoff to sort of make them, people are so busy these days and ironically because they're on their phones they don't have time to stop and pause and reflect on how they're behaving around digital and if it is playing an enhancing role so the kickoff session is really planting some seeds how are you with your technology does it play an enhancing role in your life or do you feel a bit overwhelmed do you feel that it's depleting maybe rather than enhancing um, and then we get them to consider some small changes that they could make around how they're existing both in their working time and in their personal time around their work tech and their personal tech we then support that behavioural change over a period of a number of weeks. And then we do a little piece of insights um, with them. We go back to them anonymously and we ask them, how's it gone? What have you done? Has it had a positive impact on your life? What barriers have you faced? What obstacles and challenges have you faced? And we use that information to bring them back to reflect as a group. Okay, some of you are talking about um, you're still struggling with your phone maybe being on your desk all day whenever you're at work and your mind is still distracted. Let's talk that through. Um, and just to support the change and make those changes even further embedded for them. Are you able to share any results from some of those? 100%. <laughs> so of the people who responded to the, the impact the, the learning had on their lives, I'm sure Nigel won't mind me telling people that 75% said that the inclusion of the training made them feel that PwC really cared about their well-being and respected their work-life balance. Since the programme, 74% said their work-life balance had improved and 60% said their well-being had improved. So, um, yeah, again, focus and productivity, 34% of people said it had improved. Now, this is only, we've only really spent, oh, in total, it's only really eight hours of time with these people over a six-week period. But it just goes to show you, if you create a space and support people in a safe environment to really think and discuss this stuff honestly, they can make changes. And it's not just about the phone itself. It's a cipher. It's a cipher for everything that is going on, the control that they have, the relationship that they have with their uh, stakeholders. And it's uh, created a permission to have that conversation, not only with themselves and their line managers, but also those people that they support, and say, actually, can you, can, let's work together to set our own personal boundaries with each other, not just the physical with the phone, but it is with those that they support and work for. And I think that's been one of the key enhancers, is that permission, the ability, the willingness to have conversations. And we're not there yet with all. Um, and we've, been, we've worked hard, and one of the things that uh, did come out of the work is the advocates within the PA community um, who have stood up and said, this is how I operate, and this is how I work and set boundaries with my uh, uh, senior stakeholders, and then sharing that with others, and that's been fantastic. You, you mentioned, Laura, that it's only been sort of eight hours work, obviously spread over a period of time, but how easy is it for someone to slip back into that, oh, I'm going to check my phone tonight? I mean, is it a constant reminder that you have to keep giving them? Very much so. Um, like, if I just speak about myself and my own relationship with my digital technology, because I was somebody who completely broke down as a result of a, a poor relationship with my email. I now have a lot of rules and boundaries around how I use my work email, which is my still my hook. But I have to work on it on an ongoing basis. There's a lot of drivers, there's a lot of triggers, there's reasons why we're pulled back to our technology. It's not the technology per se, even though a lot of it is designed in a seductive and manipulative way. It's what's the psychology behind why I feel I need to be back in my inbox. 
what, what is the fear? What, where is the pain coming from? And yeah, people do need support. You know, behavioural change is really, really hard. But at the end of any workshop that we run, people are always, we get them to write their intentions and they get the pens out and they're like, writing down loads of intentions. And I'm like, stop. I want you to write one or two because this stuff is really hard. We've got to be realistic and we've got to bring some kindness and curiosity to it because if you've got ingrained behaviour in your world and if we look around us, let's be honest, everybody's on their phone an awful lot of the time or in their inbox an awful lot of the day. That's an ingrained behaviour. It's going to take an awful lot of perseverance, um, experimentation and kindness for you to change that and support from your employer as well. And, you know, Nigel talking there about the stakeholders, the PAs seem to be really empowered to make positive changes. But, you know, at the end of the day, they're all in support roles working for somebody and those people at that higher level need to understand their own behaviour. I haven't, in the last four years since we launched Shine Offline, met one person, apart from my husband, who's a bit strange, who has got really good digital balance. Very few people are 100% happy with how their inbox runs their day. You know, that's just the reality of it. So what we want to do is we would just want to go out there and we want to get people to stop. Stop emailing and stop WhatsApping and stop checking news and just let's have a chat about this. Is this stuff enhancing our world? Because that's what it was designed to do. That's why we buy it, you know. Nigel, if there's uh, one message that you want um, the people coming to your workshop and listeners to this podcast to take away with them, what's that going to be? We've got to talk and we've got to talk about the issues that impact us. Digital well-being is one of those. Then the guilt that comes with, am I checking my emails? Am I not checking my emails? The guilt of, am I delivering for my stakeholder, my client, etc. We've got to talk about it. You've got to talk about it with each other, line manager. Um, but it's that permission to talk. And what I'm learning when I go, and being here at the Mad World, uh, again, that comes out so strong. Talk. Keep talking to each other. That's the, the key message. Nigel Hutchinson, uh, Laura Willis, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Ross. Cheers, Ross. Next to talk to us is Tina Sampson, Head of Reward for UK and Ireland at Molson Cause. Uh, Tina's just finished presenting a session about linking wellbeing in the workplace to rewards and employee benefits. And I have to say, Tina, I believe you're the first person we've spoken to on this topic who comes from a reward background. Yes, yeah, so uh, so I suppose I shared um, with regards to uh, why rewards is important to own the wellbeing strategy, and a lot of that is about uh, in a war for talent, it's really hard to attract and, and retain people, and at Molson Cause we want to make sure that we're giving them something that's more than just about pay and benefits, and I believe that's the future of, uh, of rewards going forwards. So um, we need to make sure that we attract the right talent and uh, that we keep the talent that we've got in the business. And actually, people are telling us that well-being is really important to that overall strategy. Um, things like work-life balance are more important to people, the environment that they work in. So they're all key to our reward strategy. Can you talk us through some examples of what you've implemented as an organisation around well-being over the last couple of years? Yeah, so first of all, I would say that senior leadership buy-in was really key. So at the start of our journey, we made sure that our country leadership team were really on board with the, the difference that a well-being plan could make to the business. And they saw that firsthand, really, for themselves when we started talking to employees about what they wanted. Our employees were really passionate about well-being. That, that was evident with things like our mental health champions, where we went out and advertised for champions, thinking that we might get 16 to train, and we ended up with over 100 applications. So it was really important that we, you know, we, we had that embedded into, uh, into our well-being plans, and they could really see the difference that was starting to make quite quickly. 
just out of interest, how did you then choose out of those hundreds? Because not everyone, I'm assuming, is suitable for the role, or can you can you turn them into those you know, champions? Yeah, I think there are certain qualities they definitely need to have. Um, they need to be able to listen and be able to signpost, so they've got to have good communication skills, so that was really important. Um, so we took some advice from our HR colleagues and also from our leadership teams, um, who would be the right people, but we absolutely wanted to make sure that they were people, a, a wide-ranging group of, a group of people across the business. Um, you know, not just, we definitely didn't want senior leaders. You know, we wanted people that could be approachable, that were seen as approachable within their functions so that we could, you know, really sort of, you know, embed that Great. truly. Great. And I stopped you uh, in mid-flow there. What, what were the other things that you've implemented then? So we've done, um, we've done things like the Mind Survey. So we signed up to the Workplace Wellbeing Index. And that obviously has given us some great feedback with regards to the mental health of our employees at Molson Cause, what they'd like to see going forwards. And that's really now pivotal to our plans. So we have our first year of results. We're just about to go into our second survey and employees can hopefully see the difference that that's making. So, um, you know, we've we've listened to them over the last year and built our wellbeing plans with that in place. Are you able to share some of those results with us? Yeah, sure. So um, we, we found out that 67% of the employees that had returned those um, those the survey had actually completed it we knew that they had a mental health problem at some point in their life and actually 62% of those 67% um, you know are actually have uh, had a, a mental health issue at Molson cause so um, you know really interesting stats and mine say that it was great that they that employees felt comfortable to share that that's the first part but then it's also about actually you know we, we don't know about all of those people um, you know sort of or certainly those numbers on you know the, the people that we've supported so far and therefore how can we make sure those employees know that they've got the support and they can actually talk um, and that's why we did our, our video so we had five brave employees who came forwards and said I want to share my experiences at Molson Cause because actually as a business we have a really strong culture and you know we and the support is in place for us and we know that the company cares so those five employees shared a, a video uh, that I shared within my session which was really powerful and, and basically says it's okay to talk and everybody has issues and, and difficulties at certain times in their life but the business is here to support them and I've had first-hand experience of that. So, you know, just, just creating that culture, um, you know, really help people feel comfortable or is starting to help people, people yeah. feel comfortable. Well, actually, because I was, I was about to ask how you set the tone for the culture in the organisation. So I, I suppose that's leading on to that, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. That was, that was definitely the first thing that we did. So, you know, those five employees actually came to us and said, I can see what you're trying to do with wellbeing. I feel really passionately about it, particularly mental health. And I want to share my story. Um, so it was actually quite easy to do. People ask me, you know, was it hard to get those people? But actually they came forwards. One of them was a senior leader in our business um, who was prepared to share his story. So, um, you know, it really sort of, it really encouraged uh, that basis for our mental health champions to then be able to really embed that um, on a day-to-day -day basis. And I guess one of the key things that's being spoken about here, which 
I, I assume is where your that, that whole culture aspect is leading to is the, is the aspect of work-life balance. Yes, that's right. We see a really strong link between mental health and work-life balance, and we see it being more and more important to people. And because of that, and our employees told us actually, we want we want you to help us create a better work-life balance. So that's been sort of a fundamental part of our plans, really. So um, we introduced summer hours um, over the summer to reflect the fact that we know people work long hours. We did things like um, encouraged out-of-office email deletion while people are on holiday. So basically, um, you know, we said to employees, don't let your emails build up while you're on holiday. You really need to have that downtime and not come into that dreaded first day back at work. So we, uh, we, we encouraged employees to basically delete all of their emails while they're off. Obviously, we make sure they have a sensible, you know, sort of out-of-office message that says you can contact this person in my absence, but really sends quite a strong message about, um, about how we feel about work-life balance in the business and making it practical for people. And then we introduce life leave, so that's up to two weeks a year on top of an employee's holiday that, that is accessible for every employee. And that's about really celebrating the moments that matter to an employee. So um, things like if you're planning your wedding, a couple of days before are normally quite stressful. You probably come into work, but you're not really paying that much attention. Um, you know, so it's about giving that time back to employees. Um, when my son graduated, um, I, you know, I had that time off with him. So it, it's about really sort of making sure that employees have that time that isn't part of their holiday, which is meant to be about downtime, but really celebrate the moments that matter in people's lives because we want employees to feel comfortable and, and be the best that they can be at work. Fantastic. And so just to finish off, what's the one main thing that you've personally taken away from today's event? So I think Ruby Wax this morning actually was great and uh, she talked about, um, you know, sort of having heroes, um, you know, sort of identifying heroes and, and using them as it were, you know, sort of, and I think she was really honest and candid um, about it and it's about relationships that people have is not about introducing lots of different initiatives. Um, yes, they you know they can form part of it, but it's actually about you know really having those core relationships in the business, whether that be with your line manager and fellow colleagues. And that really hit home to me because actually that's what we've been trying to do, and has probably had the most effect, but has cost the least. <laughs> that's great, uh, Tina Sampson. Thanks for speaking to us today. Thank you. And so we come to our final interview of this first episode from Mad World, and it's with Patrick Watt, Commercial Director at Booper Global, uh, but also leader of the City Mental Health Alliance Graduate Mental Health Programme. Uh, Patrick's just come from a session titled Meeting the University Challenge, which was chaired by one of our guests from last year's Mad World podcast, Dame Carol Black. Uh, Patrick, can you give us a quick overview of what was discussed in the workshop? Yeah, thanks, Russell. It was a really good session, um, really bringing together businesses and universities and institutes of further education, talking about the importance of student health and, more importantly, student mental health. Sadly, what we've seen in recent years is a large increase in poor mental health at university. Um, and this is increasingly important, not just for universities, but for businesses. Now, I mentioned in the, in the intro that you lead the City Mental Health Alliance Graduate Mental Health Programme. Give us a bit of background to that and what, and what you do there. So the City Mental Health Alliance was founded about seven years ago um, and its intention really was to change attitudes in the city uh, relating to mental health. Business leaders realised that this was an agenda that needed to kind of come out of HR and become more of a boardroom issue. 
businesses uh, increasingly realise that having happy, engaged workforces are more productive, they're more creative, they make better judgments and overall are better businesses. So City Mental Health Alliance really was trying to bring together businesses from the city uh, to talk about best practice and to collectively try and change attitudes towards mental health. So are these changes happening quick enough, do you think? So my kind of observations of the city and how they look at mental health really is in three main streams. Um, the first is about addressing the stigma and the prejudice that has historically existed around mental health. The second around access to services. And the third around trying to prevent people developing mental ill health. I think what we've seen in recent years is, is a step change in how we talk about this issue. Uh, we've seen more and more business leaders come forward, share their stories. I think that's kind of given... Um, people the confidence to recognise that actually workplaces are changing and that the prejudice that historically existed regarding mental health is slowly starting to, to change in a positive way. We're also seeing more employers engage in creating environments where people can maintain their health and wellbeing. Um, whether that's walking clubs, whether that's social clubs, whether that's some of the new digital apps that kind of help people with their mindfulness. I think we're, again we're seeing businesses really kind of engage in the preventative agenda. The one area that probably isn't moving as fast is actually when people identify in themselves or others that they've got poor mental health, where do they go? And it's only natural that in the current environment where people feel more able to talk about their own mental health and indeed now have mental health first aiders that can identify if there are issues in the workplace, there are still real challenges around people go for, for treatment and for services. Our National Health Service is a, is a great service and the two big programmes that are designed to support people with mental ill health, the Improving Access to Psychological Therapies or IAPT and the Child and Adolescent Mental Health Services, CAMS, are still hugely under-resourced um, and people accessing those services are finding it very, very difficult, having to wait weeks, in some cases months, and the demand for those services will continue to increase as people feel more comfortable to talk about their mental health. So employers do have to think very differently about how they address this. I think it's great that we do have mental health first aiders. I think it's also great that we have employee assistance programmes, um, services that people can call and get help around uh, their mental health. But more needs to be done. Uh, people with uh, moderate to severe mental health conditions need to be given more support by businesses. And I think the businesses have a, a real role to play in, in providing that support. And you know, we are now seeing some really progressive companies providing on-site and in-house um, psychological services, whether that's a mental health nurse or whether that's um, a therapist, um, I think that's really starting to move the dial and providing better access for people really wanting to, uh, to need help. So Patrick, uh, you have the final word on this episode of the podcast. What's your message to those listeners who have the ability to make these changes around mental health and well-being in their workplaces? So there's two things I want to say. Firstly, I think we have made significant progress in talking about mental health. Five, ten years ago, there's no way conferences like this would exist. Um, so I think it's great now um, we've got more and more people, not just from HR, but from businesses and commercial roles, talking about the importance of mental health and well-being. The key takeaway is, is that we are going to have to grasp the, the nettle. Solving this problem is not going to come about just by talking. It does require action, and that action will require investment and money. Um, so it will be important that businesses know that for this agenda to really catch hold and to support the people that are increasingly coming forward, um, we do need to invest. That's great. Uh, thanks, Patrick, for joining us. And in fact, that wraps up this first of two episodes that we're recording at Mad World Forum. So thank you to all my guests who took the time to chat to us today, to the organising team at Mad World, and of course to Circularis 8 for making it happen and for allowing us to record the interviews on their exhibition stand here at the event. 
Don't forget, if you want to discuss your working environment with Circularis 8, you can get in touch with the team there via their website at circularis8.com. That's C-I-R-K-U-L-A-R-I-S and then the number 8, circularis8.com. There will be a second episode to follow this where we'll hear from Paul Farmer, Chief Executive of Mind, along with a whole host of other speakers from today's uh, conference. So make sure you look out for that on your podcast feed. In the meantime, we hope you've got a lot out of this episode and we'd love to hear any comments you may have on the topic of mental health and well-being in the workplace. So if you'd like to contribute to the discussion, you can do that on our Facebook page, Twitter feed, or LinkedIn and Instagram pages, which are all linked from the top of the website at csuitepodcast.com, uh, where you'll also find all our previous shows and supporting show notes, plus links to where you can subscribe from any of your favorite podcast apps. And if you've liked what you've heard, then please do give us a positive rating and review. Uh, finally, if you'd like to get in touch with the show, you can do that via the contact form on the website as well, or you can reach me via Twitter using at Ross Goldsmith. But for now, thanks for listening and goodbye. Thank you.